Pues yo vengo de México, de un hermoso estado que se llama Chiapas. I come from the, the beautiful state of Chiapas, Mexico. Uh, that's where my, my family and community are. This is Ruben A. Will Lambeck for Migrant Justice is the translator. I work on a dairy farm. I've been on farms since I got here in 2017 and uh, do a bit of everything. I, I milk cows, I feed the calves, uh, really a bit of everything. Ruben A. is one of about 1,500 migrant workers from southern Mexico and Central America who work on Vermont farms, mostly dairies. When you come here, you're searching for a better life, but there are things you leave behind. Every year, Vermont Humanities chooses a book for communities across the state to read and discuss. The current Vermont Reads book is The Most Costly Journey, El Viaje Más Caro. It's a collection of cartoons that were created from the stories of migrant farm workers like Rubenet. The book describes crossing the southern border, struggling with English, adapting to winter, growing gardens, raising children, dealing with health crises, and working long hours. During our conversation, I asked Ruben A. what he misses about his life in Mexico. Mi mamá, mi papá, mis hermanos. My mom, my dad, my siblings, uh, my, my daughter. Uh, she was three years old when I left. I've been gone five years and now she's eight. Yeah, I mean, what, what I wouldn't give to, to have her with me now and to be able to, to hug her. But these are the sacrifices that you make. Uh, you, you have to leave home to try to work for a better life for, for, for you and, and for her, for your family. This is Before Your Time, presented by the Vermont Historical Society and Vermont Humanities. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then, we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. I'm Noel Clark. And I'm Ryan Newswanger. This episode is the first of a three-part series centered around Vermont farms. Migrant workers from Mexico and Central America are crucial to our state's economy, but many other Vermonters don't know much about our new neighbors. People speaking Spanish as they milk cows may not fit our traditional image of a Vermont farm, but migrant labor has a long history in Vermont. We're looking at a farm journal kept by a farmer in Panton, Vermont, um, named Silas Pond, and it dates from the 1840s. This is Marjorie Strong, assistant librarian with the Vermont Historical Society. He, he's showing his, his farm life through his accounts and also some diary entries. Marjorie wheels out a cart full of old Vermont farm diaries from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which detail everything from what crops were being planted and how many head of cattle were raised on the farm, to the smaller things like bringing home a bag of donuts or paying children for help with farm chores. Um, so a lot of farmers hired neighboring children to work on their farms. They sort of exchanged them. The location of Panton, Vermont, along the southern shores of Lake Champlain, offered in a steady flow of French-Canadian migrants to supplement the local labor force. This was a common practice for the time. Um, the, one of the more interesting features is that he lists his farmhands um, and farm laborers and the payments to them. In one of the accounts, he lists names, no last name, and then he lists other Frenchmen which he does several times. This poor fellow never got a name. Um, but so clearly there were also um, some immigrants, um, French-Canadian immigrants, who ended up working on his farm. In order for the Ponzes farm to prosper, they pulled in workers from the community as well as outside help. 
that's how I perceive earlier Vermont was more of a web of, of network. And clearly, as he says, Frenchmen and other Frenchmen also, you know, hired, hired laborers who come in as well. These farm laborers came from Quebec and many other places. Some came to Vermont against their will as indentured servants or slaves. They spoke different languages and had different customs, but they all shared one thing in common, hard work. We have another diary, um, Erastus Williams, that began in the 1830s, um, where he'll say things like hard work <laughs> and barn raising. The, the, the timbers were heavy. <laughs> um, so you can tell that it was, it was you know, not easy. But it wasn't all work. There was still time for fun, just like today. Farm workers from Mexico formed a weekend soccer league in Addison County. What's always fun with these is things like went to spelling school or went to singing school and all the people who visited. So it was an unrelenting labor. Um, there were certainly a lot of activities that they could fit in around the farm life. A poem by Robert Frost reminds us that New England has long had itinerant workers who existed in the shadows, the way that migrant workers in Vermont do today. Ryan caught up with someone who's a bit of an expert when it comes to Frost. We have this vision of Frost as being a New England farmer or a New England country person. This is my former boss, Peter Gilbert. Peter has studied and lectured about Robert Frost for over 30 years. He was an English teacher and later the executive director of Vermont Humanities. And certainly he wrote poetry out of that landscape and out of his experiences as a farmer. But that isn't the way he was raised. Frost was born in San Francisco, but when he was 11, his father died of tuberculosis. So he, his younger sister, and his mother moved east to Lawrence, Massachusetts. They were penniless. Robert helped his mother in a small school that she started there. Later, he worked in several mills in Lawrence. He made poetry out of his experiences, particularly in the rural world. He wasn't so much a nature poet as he was a a poet who dealt with uh, humans um, in the world. Frost wrote his poem, The Death of the Hired Man, in 1905, while he was living on a farm in Derry, New Hampshire. In the poem, Silas, a hired hand, has returned to a farm where he once worked. It's owned by Warren and Mary. Silas now rests inside their house, and he's not looking well. Warren has just come back from a trip to town. His wife, Mary, meets him before he can step inside. She took the market things from Warren's arms and set them on the porch, then drew him down to sit beside her on the wooden steps. So she's managing this. Uh, she doesn't want uh, Warren to interrupt or wake up Silas. A year earlier, Silas had left the farm just as haying began. Now he has returned. Warren is surprised and annoyed. He speaks what may be the poem's most well-known line, Home is the place where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. I don't know really whether uh, Silas thought of them as home, but it is the place that he chose to go in his last moments, in his last chapter. So that's a kind of a compliment, I think, to them and to their relation, um, even though <laughs> uh, Warren is um, surprised and, and frustrated or annoyed initially that he's heard that this guy has come back um, after he made it clear to him that, um, look, if you, if you walk off the job now, I, I can't take you back. The poem mentions that Silas has a well-off brother in town, a director at the bank, but they're pretty different. They don't have a close relationship. Silas has no money. He's homeless, jobless, and owns no property. 
You know, you have to remember this is well before uh, Social Security. There was no unemployment insurance here. There is no social safety net, at least on the federal level or on the state level in terms of economics. There was a local one with poor houses and that kind of thing and um, private charity. Uh, but that's it. It was, it was a, a big hole that lots of people could get stuck at the bottom of, and they did. Unlike Mary, Warren hasn't yet seen just how old and weary Silas now is. We hear Mary describe Silas's condition, and we hear Warren's hesitation to accept Silas back. It's easy to think that Warren is a bad person and that Mary is good. Some people would say, well, he's for justice and she's for mercy. That's one way to look at it. But I, don't, I think that even is too black and white, too um, separate. The poem hinges on Mary and Warren both eventually understanding and accepting Silas's return. He says, Warren leaned out and took a step or two, picked up a little stick and brought it back and broke it in his hand and tossed it by. He's a little jittery, he's a little uncertain, off balance, uh, frustrated, doesn't know how to, what to do about this situation. He's trying to understand it, first of all. Later, Mary speaks. Silas might have done something that hurt them, she argues, but he still should be treated with compassion. Her perspective about what home is differs dramatically from what her husband had said, about home being something like an obligation. But then she says the most beautiful line is, um, I should have called it something you somehow haven't to deserve. Well, that's grace. In a, in a religious sense, that's grace. Uh, the, uh, the love and the acceptance that you get, even though you don't necessarily deserve it, even though you're not without flaw. The poem asks implicitly, what is our responsibility to those on the margins, to those in need? Frost has a, a, you know, another poem about that called Love and a Question, which is what is the obligation do you think we have if somebody comes to you late at night um, and it's a cold night and they need a place to stay? Should you bring him in? Well, what if it's actually your wedding night? That's what the poem is. As the title implies, the death of the hired man ends with Silas dying. On the porch, Mary and Warren arrive at a shared understanding. And then Warren finally goes inside. And, and discovers that uh, Silas has already passed away in his sleep. That's the way it ends. Most of the Latin American workers on Vermont dairies are here without visas. Immigration policy, especially what some would call illegal migration, can feel like an unsolvable problem. But there have been times when the U.S. government encouraged migration from Mexico. You know, if, if you go back to the history, I mean, the guest worker program and guest workers goes way back. Roger Albee served as Secretary of Agriculture under Governor Jim Douglas for four years in the late 2000s. You could say that agriculture policy runs in the family. The post was once held by his twin brother, Ronald Albee. It goes back to the First World War in 1917 when, you know, they needed workers, and that there was a program passed, an Immigration Act, then to encourage guest workers. And then the Second World War with the, the Bracero program. During both world wars, the United States and Mexican governments agreed to allow what the U.S. deemed otherwise inadmissible aliens entry to the country in order to replace the Americans drafted to fight abroad. 
The program, considered to be a precursor to the current H-2A program for foreign nationals to be employed as temporary agricultural workers, ran until the early 1960s. I mean, you look at our orchards today, uh, any of them, they wouldn't survive without having the H-2A program. Uh, and that, that's the same across the country. The H-2A visa program allows seasonal workers to reside in Vermont for a limited period of time. But it doesn't help workers on Vermont's dairies, as milking jobs are year-round positions. Farm labor is extremely important. I was talking to somebody who runs the um, sort of a vegetable stand, but he also has an apple orchard and he does fruits and small vegetables and stuff. And he says the biggest problem he's having today is uh, year-round labor. He can't find the labor he needs. Albie says that the problem of farm labor shortages hasn't changed. It's the people who have changed. French-Canadian and Swedish workers eventually settled in Vermont and started their own farms. In other parts of the country, Syrian, Somali, Hmong, and Vietnamese immigrants fleeing turmoil have also become a vital part of local farm economies. I mean, at, at this time, some of us have been involved. I'm on Rotary here, and we've been involved in working with the Afghan refugees in Brattleboro, and, uh, and that's been wonderful, a wonderful experience. These people are, you know, have the ability to contribute so much in many, so many ways, just like others did before them. If, if we look at the needs and uh, what our economy is doing and how it can do, uh, historically, these guest workers are a very important part of who we are and what we are, and, and many of them will be part of our citizenry going forward. They will help guide us in the future. As Agriculture Secretary, Albie heard the voices of farmers who advertised in the local papers, paid decent wages, offered benefits and housing, but still couldn't find local laborers willing to do the work. He also heard from migrant laborers afraid to report unfair treatment on Vermont farms for fear of retribution or deportation. When I was um, ag secretary, about maybe once a quarter every half year, the consul general from Mexico would come to visit. A consul general is the head of a U.S. consulate in Mexico, which works in coordination with the U.S. ambassador to handle more routine business between the two nations outside of major foreign policy affairs. And he'd go to the governor's office and then he'd come over, sit down with me, and we'd have a wonderful conversation talking about the importance of the guest workers and how they should be paid well and treated well. And, and the conversation always came around too, also the issue of how they should be having better opportunities in Mexico as well in terms of wages. And uh, I remember after I, I left um, Montpelier, uh, the World Affairs Council and uh, Vermont Technical College and others had a conference on guest workers and somebody from the Labor Department in Vermont was involved. And, I was on the panel and uh, I spoke of the importance of guest workers historically as well as currently in Vermont and how they should be paid well and treated well. And there, uh, a woman in the audience said, got up and said publicly, we should keep them out. This sort of anti-immigrant sentiment isn't new towards guest workers. One of the pitfalls of the Bracero program was a backlash against migrant workers who often experienced outrageous charges for room and board substandard living conditions, reduced pay, and discrimination from local businesses and communities. And, and I said to her, do you know your history? Do you know your family's history? Do you know that we all came from somewhere? 
We're a nation of immigrants, but we were also a nation of forced labor. African and Native American slaves helped build the country and keep it fed. Today, Mexican migrant laborers are asked to do much of the same hard and dirty work. And I said, my greatest hope is that maybe at some time in the future, some of these guest workers from Mexico will own a farm here and be part of our economy. In the time since Latin American farm workers started coming to Vermont, they have developed their own support systems. One is Migrant Justice, Justicia Migrante in Spanish, which was founded in 2009 after a young dairy worker was pulled into a mechanized gutter scraper and strangled to death. I think we're a really tight community. We're, we're united. Uh, we help one another. Uh, so I like being part of this community, and uh, I like the work I do. Migrant Justice's mission is to build the voice, capacity, and power of the farm worker community and engage community partners to organize for economic justice and human rights. Uh, some people are living in housing that's not, how do you say, uh, comfortable or, or dignified, um, and some people without, without their, their labor rights being respected, their rights as workers. Migrant Justice has advocated for many changes to improve the lives of Vermont's migrant farm workers, including the Milk with Dignity program, which brings together farm workers, farmers, buyers, and consumers to secure dignified working conditions in dairy supply chains. It was first joined by Ben & Jerry's in 2017. Ruben A. has seen the difference. You know, here I, I, I have my own room, whereas on other farms outside of Milk with Dignity, it's three workers sharing a room between them. Uh, I have a, a comfortable schedule here. Uh, I have time off. But on other farms, they're working around the clock and, and they don't have a day off. Traditionally, the migrant workers who come to Vermont from Mexico were young men. But that is starting to change a little. In my case, uh, my wife is here with me. She works at a cafe, uh, and so we each have our own jobs. Uh, and in the cafe where she works, there, there are other uh, young Mexican women working there with her. As the dairy industry consolidates in Vermont, the number of immigrant farm workers in the industry has remained steady. But some migrant workers have moved to opportunities in other professions, such as in construction or in restaurants. Still, most plan to return to their home country someday. I mean, I, I see myself going back to Mexico. I have so many loved ones there uh, that I, uh, I, I want to be with. And, and I, I feel good being here now because I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm working day in and day out. Uh, and I feel like I, I have responsibility as, uh, as a parent to, to provide what's best for my family. Uh, if you ask me if, if I want to go back, yeah, I, I see myself back there one day. Some are choosing to build a life in Vermont long term. But then others, they feel like from the get-go, you know, they're putting down roots here, they feel comfortable here, and, and they feel like this is their, their new home. They, they want to stay. Ruben A. used a Spanish term I hadn't heard before, Bermonteños, Vermonters. Would he someday consider himself a Bermonteño? I think it's about half and half, maybe. You have a foot in both worlds because, uh, you know, you're here, you feel comfortable here, 
you are, are getting accustomed to life here, but obviously you're not going to forget where you came from uh, and, and uh, that, that you're Mexican. You don't lose that part of you. But yeah, you know, I think uh, over time somebody could, could come to identify like that. In part two of this series, we'll look at technology and its impact on Vermont farms. By the time you reach the point where you have to decide, am I going to put the money into the bulk tank or not, you've already seen a lot of falling away of those small remote farms. The bulk tank is just the last decision, the last point to cross. Look for that episode next month. Before Your Time is presented by Vermont Humanities and the Vermont Historical Society. This episode was produced by Noel Clark and Ryan Newswanger with help from Marjorie Strong and Amanda K. Gustin. Thanks to our guests, Rubin A., Will Lambeck, Marjorie Strong, Roger Alby, and Peter Gilbert. Visit our website, beforeyourtime.org, to find photos and videos related to this episode, including an extended interview with Vermont's migrant farm workers. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends about the podcast. Thanks for listening.